want us to turn in the Bible, if you have the word with you, Psalm 27. If not, there's a pew Bible right there in front of you, and uh, we invite you to take that. In fact, if you don't own a Bible and you find one of those blue, um, I think they're blue, it says uh, Bible on our Holy Bible, if you'll just take that, you can take that home with you if you don't have one. I'm glad for you to have that. <clears throat> but Psalm 27. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought we finished up the book of Psalms, and we did, but there's one that I didn't really go over that I wanted to, uh, to go over and, and to preach and to teach it to you because I think it's so important. But also, uh, one of the reasons at least I wanted to do it, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, it really does bring into a, a sort of capsule everything what we've been tr trying to teach on the book of Psalms during these past months. And so this is, as far as I know, going to be the last one. In fact, next week, we're going to have a, um, isn't it, I, I believe it's next week, yeah. We're going to have the um, next generation service. And so the youth band is going to be here, and some of our youth are going to be participating, and then I'll preach uh, the message there. But Psalm 27 is our text this morning. And we're going to talk a little bit about trusting even in the midst of fear. And we live, there's no question, a fearful type of society. We just do. Uh, I remember a time <clears throat> where people would come up to me before the service, not too long ago, like a year ago, and say, Pastor, are you going to mention this? This just happened in the news, and a terrorist attack or, or violence upon the police, whatever it was, violence in the, in the world, some killing in a city. Are you going to mention that? Nobody says that to me anymore because it's happening almost every week now somewhere around the world. So we live in a fearful world, but we also, getting it down home a little bit, have always sort of lived in a fearful private world because uh, the greatest fear, in fact, the greatest fear of all is fear of death. And the reason why it's the greatest fear is because it's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of something dark out there, something in the future, and we don't know what it is. In fact, if we were to be honest with ourselves, even, even the Bible is very sketchy on really describing what heaven's going to be like. We have a couple of chapters in the book of Revelation about it, but we just trust it's just going to be a wonderful and great place based on the description we've seen. But there's so many people that don't even believe in an afterlife. And so they fear that. Why? Because it's unknown. It's, it's the darkness coming up. And so as we look at this, we understand that psychologists would tell you, hey, look, don't sweat the stuff you don't know. Most of your fears will never come to pass anyway. Well, that's true. But what about those who do come to pass? Well, David takes a different approach in Psalm 27. And he says, look, what I'm going to present to you is the worst case scenario that could happen in my life, show you how God is going to intervene and conquer that. And when I see that, I know I can trust the Lord. And so I want you to notice how he starts this off. Psalm 27, 1, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Such a great declaration of faith. Then in verse 7, however, he struggles. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. He's struggling just like you and I struggle. Then in verse 14, we see the conclusion of it all. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord so integral in trusting God in the Christian life. And so we look at this psalm and wonder how, how in the world David was going through all these things in his life. He was first of all saying, I declare my faith. Secondly, I'm struggling with my faith. Thirdly, here's what it's going to take. I'm going to wait upon the Lord. So how do you get to that point? 
Notice this uh, psalm is divided up into four different sections, and I'll look at them with questions. First of all, where is your confidence? Secondly, how do you find that confidence? Thirdly, why do you struggle? And fourthly, what are the results? It's real simple. First of all, where is your confidence? Look with me in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Why does he use the word light? Because light clarifies the darkness, clarifies the unknown and those things that we can't see in the future, the things that he's fearing. Probably he's running from his son uh, Absalom, he's living in caves, and he's wondering when in the world is God going to really deliver him, and he's giving himself in a sense of pep talk, but really as he meditates on the Word of God, the Old Testament, first five, somewhere in the first five books of the Bible, he, he's declaring his faith. He's comforting. He's asking God to comfort him. Now, notice it says, the Lord is my light. He sheds light in the darkness. The Lord is my defense, my strong. This word means stronghold. It means a refuge, my place of safety. His confidence here, we find, is a personal experience that he's going through. And then he says um, in verse 2, when evildoers come, came upon me to devour my flesh. Now, notice, I want you to notice something here that he's saying Uh, hypothetically, some of these things may have happened, but hypothetically, there's several things that could happen to him that he is going to place in God's hand. First of all, evildoers coming to devour him. Secondly, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp, verse 3, against me, my heart will not fear. Though war may rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be calm. He says, even if war comes, If all my enemies come against me, I'm still going to be confident in the Lord. How do you reach that point? Verse 10, for my mother, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Nowhere do we find an indication in the Bible that he was really forsaken by his parents. But he says, what if? if? If this could happen, I would still be willing to trust the Lord. And he says, well, well, you know, how do we do this? I mean, we, we can put ourselves into this passage a little bit. I, I'm declaring my faith. I'm going to trust God even when, <clears throat> I don't know, my kids don't call me anymore. Even when they had the audacity to grow up and live their own life and all of a sudden things aren't centering around me anymore. Oh, I'm going to trust God even when I lose my job. I'm going to trust God when my career is flat and not going anywhere. I'm going I'm to stay confident in the Lord when uh, sickness comes upon me and I'm diagnosed with something that's uh, dreaded in this life. How do you get to that point? How do you come to the point where you can say, I have peace with it, I trust God with it? Well, let's look at it. He says, how do you find the confidence? Verse 4, he says one thing. Circle that, if you will, in your Bible. One thing, one thing that he says I have asked of the Lord, what is your one thing? We've seen this all the way through the book of Psalms. We've seen this all the way through the Bible. It's really talking about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's talking about what is the one thing, the most important thing in your life, the chief thing in your life. And he says to us just how important this is. The one thing in your life. Why? Well, because the one thing in your life really dictates your joy in life. Now, listen to this quote. Our fears are directly related to the vulnerability of the things that bring us the greatest joy. Let me say that again. Our fears are directly related to the vulnerability 
of the things that bring us the most joy. In other words, whatever we are placing on the throne of our life, whatever is the one thing, our pearl of great price, as Jesus said, you're willing to sell everything to buy that one pearl. Whatever that is, whatever is bringing you the most joy in life is the place of your vulnerability because if something happens to that one thing, it's going to kill the joy in your life. It's going to bring worry in your life and fear in your life. And so what is that one thing? What is the one thing that is most important? Listen, Thomas Oden said this, theologian of the past, anxiety or fear comes when the finite thing becomes the one thing because all things die. Now, what is he saying? And what is David realizing? He's saying, if I put anything ahead of God, I'm trusting in a finite thing. Now, we've said many times, whatever you place on the throne of your life, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you, that's going to control you because you're going to want to please that one thing. And therefore, you're going to put your confidence in that thing. That is where your confidence is going to lie to bring you joy. That's where your confidence is going to lie to bring you peace. That's where your confidence is going to lie to bring you fulfillment in life. It could be your kids. It could be your career. It could be some, uh, something else in your family. It could be just simply your self-esteem and what you do to build up that self-esteem. It could be anything in your life. But whatever it is, Thomas Oden said, it's finite. David is saying, it's finite. It's limited. It's going to die one day. And even if it doesn't, it's limited. For example... You know, there's no reason, I hope there's no reason for you wives to trust in your husbands for certain things. But he's finite. He's limited. He's going to make mistakes. Maybe he's going to, certainly, he's going to die one day, maybe before you, maybe not. But he's finite. You can say, well, my children are the number one thing in my life. But your children will leave the home and make a home of their own. One day, uh, the, the nest will be empty. Uh, sometimes those children can disappoint you, just like if you were to place all of your trust in your mom and your dad, they're going to disappoint you at some point. Why? They're finite. They're limited. And so what we're doing, we're placing our trust and our faith in something that's just as finite as we are, just as limited as we are. And yet, and yet, as we said just a few moments ago, our fears are directly related to the vulnerability of the things that bring us the most joy. And so if anything besides Christ is bringing you the greatest joy of your life, you're vulnerable and you're going to fear. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, why? why? Why do you say what if? Because what's on the throne of our life is something else. And so as we look at this, he says, we ask ourselves the question, well, yeah, but how do you do that? You receive Christ into your heart. He's Savior of your soul, Lord of your life. But you know we struggle back and forth with what's on the throne. I mean, God gives us a gift, and all of a sudden that becomes the most important thing in our life. So what do we do? He he gives us the answer. Verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, we've said in this series that David was a king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't going to dwell. He's talking about dwelling in the tabernacle. This is all tabernacle language. In fact, look down with me in verse 5 for just a moment. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. He's saying this tabernacle type of language. Now, this is before the temple time. 
uh, with David, they had a tabernacle, and in the tabernacle was the presence of God and the Holy of the Holies, really the presence of God, not just feeling the presence of God, actual the presence. God made his presence known right there in the tabernacle. And he says, the, the joy of my life is to dwell with him. And he gives the picturesque thing of the tent and the tabernacle. But what he's saying is, is that his face, I want his presence in my life. He, he talks about this in verse 8 when he said, seek my face. That's the word pania, which means his presence. And so what he's saying is, the secret to keeping God first in his life and Christ first in our life is that we would trust in the infinite and how we trust in the infinite is to live with him, to live in his presence on a consistent basis. You say, well, yeah, but how do you do that? Well, he explains that too. He says just two things. That's just great, isn't it? It makes it simple for all of us. Just two things. He says, first of all, to behold the beauty of the Lord. This word, Behold means to gaze. We've talked about the beauty of the Lord. We've talked about how when we find the Lord beautiful and we just enjoy his presence and that soothes us and beauty is so important to the human soul. In fact, beauty brings peace in our heart. That's the reason, you know, the beach looks so great to us or a lake or a sunset. Something of beauty, something that we see. It could be an art gallery and some of you and you look at the art and it's soothing to you. It's wonderful to you. Uh, it could be the young man, you know, he just can't take his eyes off that teenage girl. Now, when, it, <clears throat> when they get older, it's called, uh, you know, I guess stalking. But, you know, when you're a teenager, it's just called uh, being amazed. And, uh, you know, we've talked about that with your wives. You know, you, you, you look at and you meet your wife for the first time and wife-to-be for the first time. And you think, wow, how beautiful. You just can't take your eyes off of her. And it's not even a lustful thing. It's just something, wow. You know, you look at, oh, your, your eyes are so beautiful, you know, that kind of thing. And your skin is so beautiful. And your smile is so beautiful because our, our language is limited. And so, uh, but he's amazed by all this. He's just, he's just amazed by it. And the, and the wife looks, you know, the mother, and I, it could be the dad too, looks at that newborn baby for the first time, and the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And they're looking at that, it's their first one, you know? And they look at it, and they think, oh, I gotta, I gotta get this on film, <laughs> man. And they're sleeping. You're gonna get it on film? They're sleeping. And, and, and so you get it on film, and you, you film for about 15 or 20 minutes, and they're just sleeping. But it's beautiful to you. It's so wonderful to you, especially since they're sleeping. But it's wonderful to you. And you show it to your friends, look at this video. You put it on Facebook or, or Instagram. And you put it, man, look at this. And for 15 or 20 minutes, they're looking at a baby sleeping. And they think, what's so great about this, you know? And of course, that's only your first one. By your second and third one, you know, you, you, you know you're just looking for babysitters, you know, like us. <laughs> you know, somehow they, they won't call you back, you know, or something. I don't know. But you just look at something of beauty. And that's what he's saying, to look at the beauty of the Lord. The beauty gives us hope. It, it cures the stress. And he's saying, I'm beholding or gazing on the beauty of the Lord. What's he talking about here? Remember what we said about um, when, when you look at the beauty of the Lord, it's based on praise. And it is. Oh, look how beautiful. Look how cute. Look at this. Look at that. And you want to brag about it. You want that, that thing to go on Facebook or Instagram. You, you want that. You want those pictures. Why? You want, you want to share the beauty 
with everyone else. Those wedding photos on social media. You want to share the beauty. And people look at it and say, ooh, that is, that's pretty, that's a pretty wedding. That's a pretty sunset. You want to, you want to share it. It's based on praise. So when your relationship with God is based on his beauty and how wonderful he is, you're going to concentrate really on the praise. Nothing wrong with the petition. You ought to do that too. You ought to ask God for things. But it's going to be, you just, you're just overwhelmed by the greatness of God. But when it's based on God's usefulness, like a business relationship, you know, two guys, again, meet for business. We said, you know, they're just asking, you know, what can you do for me and what can I do for you? I mean, that's the way it is. And two ladies meet for business, same thing. And so you're meeting for business. What have you done for me lately? And so when your relationship is based on, God, are you useful to me? God, what good are you? And we ask that question, what good is God? What we're asking is, in my business relationship with the Lord, we've set this thing up. He's made promises. I'm claiming those promises, X, Y, Z. This, this ought to happen. It's all about usefulness. But David is saying, in order for me to keep Jesus, keep God on the throne, in order for him to be my one thing, and therefore, if he's my one thing, I'm trusting in the, in the infinite, not the finite. In order to make that happen, I need to praise. I need to, in my prayer time, I need to pray Praise as well as ask. Notice the second thing here, seek. He says in verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. (coughs) This word means to get advice, to get counsel. Where do we get our counsel? Where do we get our advice in the Christian life? We get it from the Bible. That's it. We get it from the Word of God. This word is just as powerful as though God was coming to you and speaking to you in an audible voice. And so we get it from the Bible. Now, St. Augustine had some really good things to say. I don't sit around reading St. Augustine uh, or anything, but I've read a few things. But basically, he's got some famous things that he has said that's quoted quoted many times. And one of the things he says is how to get the Word of God into your heart and into your life. How to really seek the Lord, you might say, in a biblical way. He says, first of all, you read the Bible and you find the truth. Find a truth that you're looking as, as God is speaking to you in the Bible. You find it and you retain it. Why? Well, because you want to meditate on it. During the day, as you've read it, in, maybe in the morning or the night before, you're meditating. You're thinking about what that verse is really uh, applying in your life. Then he says, you find God in the verse. You find God in that truth. And then finally, you delight in him through the word by living it, by just living it. And so what are we saying here? We're saying that in order to get through your fears, worries, stresses in life, fear, these great fears that you're facing in life, the great turmoil that's around you, you've got to trust in the infinite one, the only one that's infinite. How do you do that? How do you keep the trust going? Two things, prayer and the Bible. Boy, how simple is that? Man, you came to church just to hear that for the 100,000th time. But it's true, isn't it? Isn't it? So you mean it's just prayer and the Bible? Well, no. Well, yeah. Yeah, it is. Let me ask you something. Just hypothetically. If you were, and listen to me very carefully, I'm just asking you a question. Answer it for yourself. If you were to take arbitrarily 15 minutes a day 
and you were to spend that 15 minutes praising God, thanking God for things in your life, and asking him for some things as well, 15 minutes, and then opened up the Bible and studied the Bible or read the Bible, just read it for 15 minutes, and you tried to retain a truth, and then you meditated on it, and then you applied it in your life. You lived out that truth in your life that day. Let me ask you something. Do you think that'd make a difference in your life? Who'd vote yes? Sure. You say, yeah, but it wouldn't make much difference. A little bit, 30 minutes. In fact, some people even say 15. Man, that's really small. There was an experiment done years ago. And uh, what happened was they, they dropped a, a beam, a steel beam about this big around from a string. And then they dropped another string and put a cork on the end of that string. And they pulled back the cork and they let that cork swing like a pendulum and barely touching the beam, just barely, where just barely be touching it. And after about five minutes, when you put your finger below on the bottom of the beam, it would be vibrating. You could feel the vibration. Then after about an hour or two, it'd be just swinging in time with the cork. A little bit of the time, a little bit of the time, a little bit of the time, a little bit of the time. It makes a difference. It would make a difference in your life, but we, we don't do that. Something's holding us back from from reading the Bible and from praying each day. I wonder what that is. I wonder what spiritual warfare we may be going through. I wonder what's holding us back from that because all we have to do is that 30 minutes. In fact, one, listen, one forty-eighth, right, of your time in your life to go toward the most important thing in your life. And when that happens, you're going to be able to gaze upon the Lord, seek the Lord. Therefore, you're going to have one thing that's, infinite that you're trusting in and because of that it'll alleviate really most of your fears and so we look and we understand what David is saying but then he struggles just like us and if David would struggle what about us look in verse 7 Hear, O Israel, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me and answer me when he said seek my face my heart said to you your face, your, your presence, O Lord, I shall seek. Then he, he prays for four things. Notice what he prays for. Two of them in verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. You ever feel like God's hiding his face from you? Hiding his presence from you? He's hiding somewhere. Then he says, do not turn your servant away in anger. Why would he do that? Because, well, David has sinned. Just like us. And there's forgiveness, there's grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Sometimes you feel like Satan's telling you, God is leaving you. He's hiding from you because he's going to abandon you. When Jesus said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Notice verse 10, he talked about his father and his mother forsaking me. The Lord will take me up, a hypothetical thing. Uh, but then in verse, verse 11, he says two more things. Teach me your way. Why is he praying that? Because he's running from his son Absalom. He's in the caves, and that's the place in the caves, in the wilderness, in the valley, where you learn the most about yourself and really the most about God. Now, when things are going great, the money's coming in, your kids are doing great. You know, great things are happening in high school and middle school and in college, and man, your grades are up, and you're, you're the star of the team. 
Who's going to go to God in prayer then? Man, there's no desperation there. It's the times when we, we, we go through adversity. It's the time when we don't make the team. It's the time that we don't make the grades. It's the time where our kids don't make the grades. It's the time when maybe we're struggling in our career. The times when God really teaches us. But then this last insight that he prays for is precious. He says, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Hey, look, I've got enemies all around me. They're coming after me. And therefore, God, I need to see. He says, make it, make it a level plane. Now, Pam and I just came from off our sabbatical, and we stayed in, uh, up in the mountains uh, um, for, a, for a while and um, rented a place. And, and we went, this time we went near, uh, anybody ever heard the Andy Griffith show? Anybody here? You know, there's a fictitious Mayberry called Mount Airy, North Carolina. And so we stayed near there. And, um, and so, you know, we were going around these curves, going up to the mountain. I, I would have never done this if I'd have known. You know, you never know when you go on the Internet what you're getting. And, uh, and so we're going around these curves and, and the gravel road, and we can't even see around the corner. See, David is saying, look, when, you're, when you can't see, the unknown is so threatening to you. It is. You're going down in a valley, up on a mountain, down in a valley. Well, man, when you're on the mountaintop, you can see it all. But when you're down in the valley, you're going down into the valley or coming up the mountain, you can't see anything. And that's most of our life. We can't see. He says, make it level. I don't know how many of you, you know, I, I hate to have you keep voting here, but have you ever been to um, Texas? First time I ever went to Texas, I was checking out Southwestern Seminary. And I started driving, and it says 18-hour drive. So I took off in our little Pinto and uh, went out to uh, Fort Worth, Texas. I was driving by myself, and I was driving and driving and driving and driving. Finally, I saw it. There was Dallas, Texas at night. It was all lit up. It was off in a distance. It looked about 30 minutes away, I guess, maybe at the most. And I thought, man, I got here in 14 hours in a Pinto. Y'all don't even know what that is. It's a car. Okay, it's a car. <laughs> Ford. Ford put out that car. Not that they would claim that, but I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say anything bad about Ford. <laughs> you know. Anyway, I was driving this Pinto, and we were I, I, 14 hours in. Four hours later, I got to Dallas. You could see this city three, four hours away. That's how flat everything is. And he's saying, make it flat. Make it so I can see the enemy coming. Make it so I can be so sensitive and so aware, I can see the darkness around me. I can see the unknown as much as humanly possible, that I could anticipate the unknown. He says, Lord, I pray for this. And that's something that you and I need to pray for as well. But he says, he says, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Man, they, they were talking about him and talking about bad things, and he was, had nothing to do to, to defend himself. And he says, Lord, help me see it coming. Well, what are the results of all this? He's saying the answer is very simple, a relationship with God. Well, what's the, what, what is the result? Look in verse 13, because sometimes we think that the results are always in the afterlife. But notice what he says. says, I would have despaired. Man, what a word. He said, I would have been discouraged. No, that far beyond discouragement. Far beyond depression. 
He said, I would have been in desperation. I would have despaired. I would have been unable to almost face life if it were not that I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Today, this life, David says, I'm going to see the promises of God, many of the promises of God fulfilled in my life in this life. I can trust him. In fact, 2 Chronicles uh, 16.9, one of my favorite verses, says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Man, what a promise. Now, the question would be, of course, is, his, is your heart and my heart completely his? That's the question. Who's on the throne? Who has the pearl of great price? I mean, what is the pearl of great price, excuse me, in your life? And he says, because of that, I realize, David said, some things you have to wait for, the great things in life. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Yes, the Lord is my light. He is my salvation. He is my defense. He is my rescuer. But sometimes I'm going to have to wait to understand what that is. And waiting is where you really grow in Christ. Waiting is when God pulls all the things together. But also waiting really describes my relationship with him. Because we are all willing, willing to wait on someone we love. Okay, the, the guy that says, hey, I want to meet you because I want to sell you something. He comes uh, to your home and, or he's going to come to your home at uh, 7 o'clock <clears throat> last night. He didn't show up. And you want to go to dinner, 7.30, still wasn't there. So you left. He showed up at 8 o'clock. Oh, too bad. You weren't there. Why? You had no relationship with him. You had no obligation to wait on him at all. Impatient with him. You could be as impatient as you want. He's there to sell you something. But if your wife's late, you might pace the floor a little bit, rattle the change in your pocket, <sighs> breathe a little bit, but you're not going to run, run off and leave her. You're not be going down the driveway when she's still getting ready. Why? Because you have a different relationship with your wife than you do with the business guy. Waiting on the Lord reveals my trust, my relationship, my love, relationship with God. You say, you know, Pastor, I'm, I'm really, I'm glad we're finished with Psalms because I'm really tired of hearing about the Lordship of Christ. I'm tired of hearing about, you know, the throne and all that kind of stuff. Well, we preach on that stuff all the time, whether we're in Psalms or not. And let me ask you something, just hypothetically. Would you like... How would you like <clears throat> to live a life where you trust God in the midst of family turmoil? Imagine that. You're going through such turmoil, nobody really knows what you're going through with your family, that you can have a peace that passes all understanding and trust in him. Can you imagine a life like that? Can you imagine trusting God in the midst of a heartbreaking loss. You lost someone. You lost something. You lost a career. You lost your job. You lost your mom, your dad. Can you imagine, even though in your sorrow, still trusting God? Can you imagine a life like that? Can you imagine with me a life that even when the answers can't be found, 
Even when there seems to be no wisdom in sight, you can still trust him. Can you imagine making wise choices and not being filled with a fierce grip of panic in your life every time you fear? Can you imagine that life? That's the life he's talking about. That's the life that's open to us if we make God our one thing, Christ our one thing, and following him. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.